Uh, well, for those of you who know us, know that we are, um, Diane and I are the parents of three boys, one girl, uh, Bethany's home right now from college. Um, no applause needed, but I just need to mention, because I'm going to mention the boys in a second and the things we do baseball with them, but being also the father and mother of a girl, we spent a lot of time um, at dance recitals and, and, uh, and, and baton twirling recitals and such like that. But as parents of boys, um, we also spent a lot of time sitting on the sidelines of baseball games, a lot of baseball games, watching our boys play the game of baseball, cheering them on from the sidelines. Um, I don't have a precise count, but I think it's safe to say if we were to add up the combined seasons of in-house travel, high school, and, and now college baseball, it would not be an exaggeration to say we have watched 30 seasons of baseball, my wife and I, together. And uh, it's never been a burden. It's something we enjoy, and it is, uh, it's coming to a close pretty soon. Jonathan's got two years of college ball left, and that's going to pretty much wrap it up. And uh, that'll be a sad day. But um, over the years, as we've watched baseball, um, one of the top frustrations that we've seen, that I've seen for both the players and the coaches of both teams, it happens when the umpire behind the plate starts making an inconsistent strike call, when the strike zone is inconsistent. And you may know what I mean, but if you don't, that's what happens when, when a pitch that lands in the same location gets called a strike sometimes, and it gets called a ball other times. So if you've ever experienced that in the course of the game, you know nothing unleashes the fury of the coaches, the <laughs> players, and sometimes, yes, the parents on the stands, not Diane and I, of course, but other parents, um, quite like when that happens, because an inconsistent strike zone, it destroys the integrity of the entire game. So umpiring 101, right? The first thing that the umpire is obligated to do is to establish the strike zone early in the game and then to maintain that strike zone throughout the course of the game. That means that the players who are up to bat can be confident that what's called a strike one time is going to get called a strike every time. So what we're going to see this morning is that what's true of baseball is also true and applies to beliefs. Um, we're in a series, the series is called Growing Pains. We've been making our way right through the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter written to a childish church in the city called Corinth by the Apostle Paul, written to help them grow up in the Lord, grow up spiritually. And this morning, we're up to chapter 15, verse 12, and it starts out with this statement. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's kind of like an inconsistent strike zone. It's calling out this inconsistency of what some of the Corinthians had been claiming. How can you claim this when that has already been established? And, and just to catch you up to speed, we're picking up this morning where we left off last week. So let me do just a little bit of review if you weren't here. And to do that, I have to apologize for mixing up sporting metaphors because when we looked at it last week, we saw that the Corinthians threw out the challenge flag. 
over the call about the resurrection. Of course, the challenge flag comes from football. The strike zone comes from baseball. So if you're not a sports fan, you're completely confused. Um, but, but they were challenging this claim that one day they would rise from the grave after being dead and buried to live out an eternal, physical, bodily existence. They heard that and said, that's outrageous. That's unbelievable. Spiritual resurrection, you know, like floating around in the clouds and that kind of thing. That's okay. We can go for that. But this claim that lifeless bodies were going to come back to life. They just said, that's too much, Paul. No way. We're challenging that claim. And so this chapter we're in, chapter 15, is basically it's the play review. And last week we, we, we saw the play on Jesus' resurrection confirmed that after he died for our sins, he was buried and then he rose back to life eternal. And that was, that was confirmed by the Old Testament promises, the expectations, the eyewitness accounts of those who saw his, the risen Lord and, and also by the 180 degree turnaround of Paul's own life. All of those confirmed that the call on Jesus' bodily, physical resurrection, that one stands. And so where we're at today, this morning's passages is written to assure God's people that what the Redeemer established, the redeemed can expect. See, there is no inconsistent call in the Christian life. It's all or nothing. The way it went for him is the way it's going to go for us. His Resurrection is our reference point. So if the Redeemer rose bodily, then the redeemed can confidently expect to rise bodily as well. And, uh, and so we're going to work through that this morning. And it's important to state up front here that, that what we're looking at is presented by Paul as essential information that cannot be missed, so please understand, sometimes when we talk about belief and doctrine and those kind of things, it sounds like, is this some kind of fine-tuned, abstract doctrinal nuance that, that people like to argue over, but it doesn't really make any difference? There are those, but this is not it. This is, this is vital truth. This is transforming truth. And the reason is, is that once, once we have clarity about the way things are actually ultimately going to end up, then we can have confidence to live out right here and right now in a faithful and courageous way. And so that's why starting out right away, the, inconsistently gets, the inconsistency gets, gets called out. Because some of the Corinthian Christians, they believed Jesus rose. Okay, fine, I'm all right with that. But, but they just doubted they ever would. And so Paul says, no, it's all or nothing. And so we're going to read through this play review, and just a quick note, if some of what we're looking through this morning sounds a little bit like deja vu, there's a reason for that. We, we did work through this passage, part of this passage, um, on Easter morning. And part of the problem, you know, Easter is a great holiday, but the reality is the resurrection is not a, a moment that's meant to be celebrated one day on the calendar once a year. That is, that's the tragic thing. I, I, matter of fact, I think we were picking out songs for Easter, and I believe Adam said, Easter is every day. And, and it's true. We, we do not want to isolate it. It is every day. The resurrection is the reference point for the Christian life 
today and every day. And so we're going to read through it again. And, um, and sometimes I will tell you the most challenging sermons to actually prepare are the ones that I've already preached because there's so much in there. And, uh, and so we're going to take a little bit of a different um, focus on it this morning. So, so let's dig in. And uh, starting in verse 13, it says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Uh, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And we'll just stop there and unpack this a little bit. This, this is taking us once again back to where we were last week, back to Jesus and his resurrection, because we already said it's, it's an all or nothing deal. His, his resurrection becomes our reference point. And, and we're going to see in just a minute that if he rose, that means we must. But what we first see here is the inverse, that if he didn't rise, then we can't. And, and those, those are the only two available options. And it confronts us here with some unavoidable realities This is what it means if Jesus did not rise. If the grave was the end for him, then it means unavoidably that it's the end for us as well. Or to actually trace the logic, uh, you know, Paul writes very logically in this passage, he's step-by-step process. It's basically if Jesus didn't rise, then death hasn't been defeated. And if death hasn't been defeated, then our sins haven't been forgiven. And if our sins haven't been forgiven, that means that we are still stuck in them. And so if Jesus didn't die for our sins, what that means is that we are going to die for them ourselves. So here's what it leads to. If Jesus' story ended in the grave, that's how all the stories end for us as well. Right? The last line of the last page of your story, of my story, of everyone's story is... You die the end. It's the unavoidable reality, the conclusion. And on top of that, not only that, it says if Jesus is remaining dead, then living out the Christian life makes no sense at all. Zero. If he's not alive, then trusting in him is a joke. It's a bad joke. And and going to church is a waste of time. There's no point even to preaching. Because what kind of message of hope Can you possibly offer someone if the ultimate outcome is that you wind up dead six feet in the dirt? There there basically is one. There there, there is nothing to offer. That if our loved ones who died trusting in Christ, if he hasn't been risen, then they're they're gone for good. And Christianity becomes nothing more than just a, uh, a coping mechanism, which is basically another word for a distraction, a crutch, that, hey, if it works for you, then fine. But when you peel back the layers, what you find at the center is just hopelessness and despair. It's the only logical conclusion. And so the problem with that story, right, with the story where at the last line of the last page of the last story, everyone winds up dead in the ground. I don't have to tell you, that story 
sucks. Sorry to be so blunt, but it's the truth. That, that is not the way any story you've ever read has ever ended. It's just not. It's like when you watch a bad movie, the kind where you feel like, I just wasted two hours of my life that I'm never going to get back, except this is applying to your entire existence. That's what it's about. But the good news is that that's not how the story ends. Reason being is that Jesus' grave was empty. And it still is empty. Jesus is alive, and the passage goes on to unpack the consequences of that reality. It says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God put all things in subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. All right, so what it's getting at here is that it's an all or nothing deal. Jesus did physically rise from the grave, so if your life is wrapped up in him, then the way your story ends, it's already been established. There are no inconsistent calls. What happened to him would that will happen to those who are in him. So, so once again, let's trace the logic of the passage here. Paul contrasts these two men and the reverberating impact of each of their actions and how it echoed through the ages. One man is Adam and the other is Jesus. You're probably familiar with Adam's story, right? He, he ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, what happened is it impacted everyone who lives from that point forward. There's just basically no way to put the toothpaste back into the tube. It was out, right? The knowledge of good and evil was out. And everything that God created good went bad at that point. And death entered into our existence, into our reality. And from that point forward, death started calling the shots. Everybody had to deal with death, and death always won the match. The grave had the final say for every person's physical existence. And that remained the case until one man came and changed all that. That changed when Jesus rose from the dead. His physical resurrection changed everything for everyone. It says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The impact is it's astounding, right? What, what Jesus accomplished, it's, it, it's described in terms of conquest, like, like a battle, like a war was won. On the other side of the grave... Death became the conquered enemy, and Jesus became the risen Savior and the victorious Lord. He took back the power, the authority, the grip that death once held. And the point is getting at is that when Jesus rose, 
he rose to reign. And, and this, is, this is really important to understand that the risen Lord Jesus, he is, he is Lord of all. So, so we cannot compartmentalize Christ, right? He is not just sovereign over the physical reality. Like, okay, here's the box of the physical. Jesus is there. And then here's the physical, and he's not in charge of it there. He is Lord over every area of existence. The physical is as subject to him as the spiritual. Your physical body is not exempted from his sovereign authority. Right? And so some of us recognize it, and some of us don't. It's, it's not my body, my choice. It's, it's his body, his will. And so Jesus rose to take charge of every arena of our lives, and that's going to extend and expand and echo, and ultimately he's going to take charge of every arena of existence. And the passage talks about that. It's playing out right now. It's playing out right now in the lives of those who willingly, right? We willingly surrender ourselves, including our bodies, to his rule and his reign. Lord, have your way in me. And this passage assures us that, that because he has risen, his reign will one day extend, not just to us who willingly surrender, but it will extend everywhere to everyone and everything. That's pretty comprehensive, right? That moment has not arrived yet, but it is coming, it's set, and it is guaranteed. And so when you look at what falls into the box of what Jesus is Lord over, there's nothing that doesn't fit into that box. No molecule of existence escapes his authority. But it says it's going to happen as a process. It says, to each one in his own order. He says, Christ the first fruits, and that is coming those who belong to Christ. And so what that's getting at is that Easter, Easter morning was Jesus's moment. That's when his, his body rose back to life. When Jesus returns, he says, that's our moment. That's when our bodies will rise physically back to life eternal. That's, that's as, as the passage describes, um, and it's the consistent testimony we see all throughout history, this is the specific moment history is leading us towards. His return, his reign, and the redeemed resurrection. The day is coming. And what that means is that the sovereign risen Savior is the one who writes the end of the story. And we're told in advance right here how the story ends. Did you catch it when I read it? Maybe you missed it. Let me read it again just in case you did because it's too good. You don't want to miss it. It says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. See, that's the last line of the last page of the last story. The story doesn't end in the grave. It ends in glory. 
Because Jesus, the risen Savior, reigns. And in his reign, he restores order. That means he puts everything back in place that has been out of place for so long. It goes back where it belongs. He picks up all the broken pieces. He puts it all back together again the way God originally designed it to be. And that means all of the outlaw elements, they all get reeled in, they get dealt with, they get put away. And the ultimate outlaw element, it's death. It's death. So understand this, death was never intended to be a part of God's plan. And Jesus arrested death when he resurrected. And in the final act of his reign, the very last thing he does before he hands over the keys back to the heavenly father, he destroys it. He destroys death by resurrecting his people from the grave back to life eternal. That's how the story ends. And if, if your life is wrapped up in him, that's your story. That's what you have to look forward to. And unless we happen to be alive when Jesus returns, who knows? Um, but apart from that being the case, here's the reality. Death and burial, they're going to be a part of our story. It's just, it's fact. But what's also fact is that they are going to be a chapter of our story, not the end of our stories. And we can know that because of Jesus, because his resurrection is our reference point. Eternal life is at the end, not just disembodied spiritual existence up in the clouds, but physical life in an actual glorified physical frame. And come back next week, we're going to get a tiny glimpse of what that's going to look like. That's what the passage goes next. But for now, the point is this. Know for sure right now, regardless of how bad, how challenging, or how difficult the current chapter you are in right now is, remember how the story ends. Keep that in mind. That is the way to live out the now because it's been established. There will be no inconsistencies and it is just all playing out. And that's, that's the kind of confidence that we need. And it's the kind of confidence we get when we make his resurrection our reference point. Now, before we close here, I would just, there is one final take home. So I'm just going to ask you to stay with me and we're going to read just a little bit more. And uh, continuing on, here's what it says next. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. All right, so we got to unpack this a little bit. Remember, this section, um, Paul is addressing the challenge flag that the Corinthians had thrown out about the resurrection. And, and here what Paul is doing, I think, in effect, is he's, throwing the, he's picked up that challenge flag, and now he's throwing it back at them. 
right? He is challenging them. He is challenging us to look at our own lives and to do a little bit of self-reflection. And he points out, here's some evidence right in front of you that you are living inconsistently. There's an inconsistency in the way you're living. And he asked the question, why do people get baptized for the dead? You're wondering the same thing. What the heck is that all about, right? And, and so let's deal with that one. And I will just tell you right up front that we don't know what that means. Sorry, it's the truth. We don't know what it means. The, Paul knew what it meant. The Corinthians knew what it meant. But we weren't a part of that conversation. And it was a couple thousand years ago. So we don't. Um, a lot of people have written a lot of books that could speculate about it. But we can't know for sure. But that's Okay. Because that's not the point. The point is not that we know what that means because nowhere is there any instruction, hey, you should be baptized for dead people. That doesn't, that doesn't say that. It's just pointing out this fact that it's happening. And what he's getting at by, by, by mentioning it is, is that even, even though you guys doubt the resurrection, you can't deny the reality that existence didn't end when someone died. That's, that's what he's pointing out to them. And we can say the same thing. Ask anyone who's lost someone dear. Many of us in this room have. And there's just something in our souls that refuses to just release that and say they're actually gone, right? And, and so we say, they're still with us, you know? And, oh, I saw a sign from them, and this happened, and that happened. And, and is it true? Isn't really the point, The point is that there's something inside of us that needs it to be, that knows that that death is really that wrong, that much of an assault on the way things ought to be. There's just no getting over death because it wasn't a part of God's plan. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. He's calling them and he's calling us to just Look in the mirror and examine our own lives and confront the inconsistencies. And cultivate consistency. Is, that's, that's what I use for the point here, but since this morning when I finished that and now when I'm preaching, I've changed it. Shouldn't it be consistency? Cultivate conviction. That's really, sorry, just came to me a little bit too late. This conviction and this is consistency between what we believe and how we live. Because here's the reality. We are always living out our beliefs. The problem is sometimes we just have the wrong beliefs. We're working out of the wrong belief system. And so Paul talks, away, he talks about the way he's been living out his life. He says, I've set my own life up and it's like a battle. I'm contending for this faith. Basically saying I'm not out to maximize my self-comfort. I'm not out to be safe and secure and have all kinds of stuff. I'm struggling. He says, I'm battling. There's this war that I'm engaged in because he believes at the bottom of his heart something's at stake. Something matters. And, and he's using these metaphors of contending with wild animals and stuff like that. And really what he's contending for is right teaching and wrong teaching, right belief and wrong belief. And while he's contending, what he's pointing out is that the Corinthians were compromising. He's contending the Corinthians were compromising. The resurrection, they're like, 
yeah, I don't know about that. Does it really matter? Is it that big a deal? And so Paul reminds them, bad company ruins good morals. And I don't think he's talking about, you know, the company of friends. It's not what he's warning about. He's warning about the, the bad company of beliefs, bad beliefs. Because it's no surprise that the same ones who didn't care about the body, whether the physical body were resurrected, they were struggling with sins of the body, right? We read about it a few chapters ago. Sexual sin was this major issue in their church because they didn't think God was really caring about that that much. And so he's pointing that out. In our lives, there are messages constantly knocking at the door of our hearts, of our lives, telling us, this is what's real. This is what matters. This is what you need to consider and respond to. And the messages we take in are always going to trickle into our lives and work their way out into the way that we live. Beliefs and behaviors. There's a, there's a direct connection. Bad teaching leads to bad living. And so filter them out, right? Because we've got messages coming out from our TV, uh, from our friends, from our places of work, from our social media feeds. All of them are telling us something. This is what's real. This is what matters. This is what's true, right? Sometimes just spell out some of the messages we hear today. Like, you know, I remember seeing a bumper sticker on our neighbor's car. It said, he who dies with the most toys wins, Right? I watch commercials that say, you need this product for your life to be fulfilled. It's messages of greed, of selfishness, of materialism. You need to work them through and filter them through the word of God. Right? The, the right narrative has to be laid on top of our lives. And front and center always is the resurrection. The matters of life and death and eternity. And so, you know, we woke up yesterday and uh, the news we all woke up to was that Israel had been attacked, right? And, and who knows what that's going to lead to. There is a global instability that has come into our reality yesterday that wasn't there the day before. We know lives were lost. And from the look of things, many more lives will be lost as well. So does that message, he who dies with the most toys wins, does that matter to anyone in Israel today? It matters nothing, right? What matters today to them is the same thing that matters to us today and every day. It's the reality of our own mortality, the reality of eternity, and the reality that Jesus is the only one in the course of human history who has been not only to the grave, but through the grave, And so our lives need to be connected to him. So if the resurrection is real, what Paul's getting at here is that it's going to call you out of the ordinary, comfortable life to live in a way that somehow is lived beyond yourself, beyond myself. And that wasn't happening in Corinth, and so he's calling out the contradiction, and the truth is we all have contradictions. Right? We are all, to some extent, walking contradictions between what we espouse and confess and say is the case and just the way that we're, we're living out our lives. The question is, what do we do with that? And so 
the mature response and the immature response, right? That's kind of what we're getting at, right? We're all works in progress, and maturity recognizes that there is a gap there. It needs to get closed, and I'm going to work intentionally to do that. I'm going to cultivate biblical conviction. I'm going to live those out. I'm going to stand on that. Immaturity says, yeah, oh well, doesn't really matter, so what? So as we close, let me just ask you, what's, what's your response? Because right here, right today, there is no message that matters more than the message that Jesus died that for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And the same Jesus who rose again is coming again. And there is a date with death that all of us have. And the reason he came is so that would not be the end of our story. So it would just be a chapter in our story and the end of the story would be with him in eternity. Let's pray together.